We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. All right, how's it going? That was the voice of Patagonia's Yvonne Chouinard, and this is Type 2, a podcast from Looking Sideways in association with Patagonia that explores the intersection between outdoors, action sports and activism. Episode 10, this one. And in each show, I've been meeting people who are using their passion and involvement with the cultures we all love to create change. I've been discussing the issues they're involved in, the change they're seeking to create, the difficulties involved and the rewards that follow. Now, this week's guest has long been on the hit list. It's surfer and activist Dave Rastovich. Dave is one of the world's most respected, stylish and talented surfers, who's also had one of the most interesting careers in surfing. I think you can easily say that. He came up with pairs like Joel Parkinson and Mick Fanning. Parko says he's the most talented surfer he's ever surfed with, in fact, but early on rejected the idea of a competitive surfing career and instead became the modern manifestation, really, of the free surfer, following in some venerable footsteps with that path. And he's always been an innovator and a leader, Dave, always been ahead of the curve, whether it was through that career path, through the equipment that he championed when it was not fashionable to do so, and his environmental activism, because alongside his surfing, Dave has come to epitomise the very idea of the modern surfer as activist, initially thanks to films like The Cove and Minds in the Water, and then also through his involvement in various different campaigns. Today, Dave's living with his young family on a patch of land near Byron Bay and a very idyllic life, it sounds, as you're going to hear. And he's still a committed, articulate activist who's lent his heft to to campaigns such as the Fight for the Bite, King Island. There's a long list. We go into a lot of them, as, as well as local issues that he's also very passionately involved in. Now, Dave Rastovich's story is pretty well told. So in this conversation... I was interested in seeing where he is now in light of his experience as an activist, as a new dad, and also as a result of the very real ecological damage that they've been experiencing in Australia over the last couple of years. How's it changed his approach? What's he learned? And what lessons can we take from Dave's experiences? I'm sure it's not going to surprise anyone to learn that Dave is a lovely, generous and interested conversationalist. And I've very much enjoyed this wide ranging and passionate chat with one of surfing's greats. Just a little note on the sound, as is uh, normal these days. We recorded this one over Skype, actually, this time. There is some background noise. I'm sure you'll cope because it's a great conversation. My thanks to Dave for being such a great sport. Here it is, me and Dave Rastovich. Enjoy. some waves this morning yeah we're, we're on a run of about uh two months of surf here uh, at least i think um and uh you know we've when i say we i mean like my my partner lauren and i in our little sort of neighborhood of uh surfing sort of people uh in this pretty rural area between busy surfing areas but um but yeah we've had a a run of surf which is typical for autumn for us and um and the last few years um we have not really had any autumn season and so we've just had these long nasty summers that have then in june or july just 
switched to winter and we've just missed our whole favorite most celebrated surfing season of the year so so actually right now you know you've got the human drama of all the virus stuff and everything but 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 that's way over there in left field because right in front of us here in this region every day is pumping surf and empty beaches and there's rain and there's sun and so all of the food we grow is just powering and there's fish everywhere and migrating whales and it's just like yeah the human story is not really that interesting right now compared to all this other stuff is that that must have been quite a relief after the summer you guys have had as well right yeah so so coming out of um really the last few years though we've had uh we've had a very strange um cycle with our seasons where like i live on um you know 20 acres of land i have across the road from where I am there's monocultured sugarcane being farmed they've just switched to macadamia but it's still monoculture and we've watched them struggling and when they turn their soil it just blows away into the air it's like dust you know and and then and then on our side of the road it's all small acreages that are growing lots of diverse food and um, doing lots of different smaller scale type of family farming stuff and uh, and we've all been struggling the last few years because it's just been so unpredictable and so dry and uh, just very strange, very, very strange seasons. And so that's why this year to to have what we would traditionally say a, a typical autumn where we've had plenty of rain, plenty of sun and plenty of surf is just a huge relief after all the fires and everything that happened so you know it's longer than just the summer that the world saw us go through has been um you know definitely some weird ecological imbalances expressing themselves here in australia for sure so locally to you then as you've just described what what do you put that down to Mm. that that variation that you describe in that kind of um because clearly there's a there's an ecological reason for that and you're so close to it i'm sure you've given it some thought what do you think it's what, what do you put it down to well you know obviously there's the big um you know human created impacts and on larger systems that are at play here and you look at australia and the deforestation that's gone on is is outrageous you know and is still going on especially in somewhere like queensland just radical amounts of trees being dropped every year and so that affects rainfall and then that affects you know where um, water is pooling or not pooling over this amazingly large continent and so um, so really you can just see that it's sort of it's sort of the repercussions of decades of industrialized practices on this country that are now coming back to bite us in the bum you know so like you go to the bottom of australia right you've got this this area like south australia the state is uh, a very very dry very flat place it ends in these cliffs that plunge into the ocean the ocean's full of life it's incredible um, and that's the the bite that's what we were all working for for the last few years with fighting the bite campaign and everything but when you drive through that landscape and you say or you feel that it's desert it's only a type of desert because all the trees have been dropped so long ago and it's just become massive monoculture wheat belts and oat farms and soy farms and everything um, it's only dry and like a desert because of that so so those are the sort of things that when you actually travel this country 
and you see these wide open spaces and you don't just say, oh, wow, it's nice to be in an open space, but you actually look at the, the landscape and realize what's happened there, that you realize that sooner or later, it's, we're going to have to pay the price for those sort of actions. So anyway, that's how, that's how I see it here. And then when we think about um, just this area, you know, we've got a lot of issues with just uh, river quality and water quality and stuff like that. So, um, so they're all things that entered the, the international sort of news space over the last six months, you know, especially when the country is burning. But they're all things that we've been living with here for a long time if you have a sort of a, um, an interest in those things. Yeah, I guess what you described as well with that um, erosion is so maddening, isn't it? Because it's not like there aren't huge historical precedents for that. You know, obviously like the Dust Bowl, the you know there there, there are previous ecological crises. To call them well documented is to is to understate it. Really, you mm. know, it's, it's it's a pattern that keeps happening, isn't it? Yeah, you know, like and no and people don't industry doesn't seem to learn. Yeah, I well, mean the Dust Bowl is like probably the the most famous ecological man-made disaster ever, isn't it? And yeah. it's exactly as you're describing. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So, the the wild thing about what we have just endured in Australia with the fires is that it literally touched everyone everywhere. <laughs> it was so radical. Like every summer, there's fires in Australia. It's just the way it is. And some years it's in your area. Some years it's in Tasmania or wherever it is with these pockets. But literally over um, the period between September last year, which was when the first fires happened in our area around here and Angari, the north coast of New South Wales, um, until the last fire, which was actually a friend of ours' house on the last day before the rains came, their house burnt down, which was in January. So we had this crazy many, many month-long period where... um, where these fires really touched everyone and it was it was really obvious through our sort of government and um, things like logging industries, um, their response to that was so out of whack with the actual everyday Australians' experience of these fires and the, the realisation no matter what background you have, if you're really conservative, if you're a really conservative farmer or... Um, you're a really left field greenie um, you, you all, we're all united by the knowing now the physical knowing because we lived through it that we are altering this space to a degree that's really harmful for all of us in the biosphere not just for the wildlife or whatever it's all of us and um, and so that's really quite interesting because what will come from that perhaps is a really unified um front of care and action and concern into the future that hasn't happened before in Australia. You know, there's always like everywhere there's factions that sort of oppose each other and there's that sort of political battle that happens before you can get to, um, you know, an agreement of some sort or a realisation that a place is is better off left alone or or saved in some way. But I think in Australia right now there there is underneath all of this current human drama of the virus thing i think there is a real a real unity in our understanding that this place isn't as tough as we thought it was it's it's it is fragile and we do have a really big part in its well-being so that's really i think that's really exciting that's a real positive to come from what we just went through it's really interesting to hear you say that because 
obviously every country has that gap between you know a government's plan for growth which often is extre well always extremely damaging to the environment and if you look at australia you know that's particularly acute because it's about mining it's about going into remote areas it's about you know it's growth in australia tends to mean damaging local environments doesn't it oh, i mean it just does yeah. really yeah, yeah. digging so holes if you, so yeah. The, yeah so you've got that gap between what government thinks is the right thing to do and then activism that you're talking about and that's always been from what i could see huge in australia and also you do you know you mentioned the fires and you could see that from scott morrison's you know how badly he seemed to get that like with his messaging but fight for the bites obviously a really positive outcome because for once that gap was really narrowed wasn't it and it changed you know mm. like the activism that was there and and the effort that you guys made actually did change that narrative it it, it meant that a decision that would have previously been taken economically in which the government had backed 100 percent. let's not forget it, it didn't happen it changed so i guess my question would be you feel like that is something that could be more of a permanent movement then you feel like that is changing yeah yeah well i um i feel i feel that also because of a uh, local win that we had in our region uh, a few years back against um fracking industries that came to the area in particular a company called met gasco came to the northern rivers region of new south wales which is basically in the hills behind Angowrie, in the hills behind Ballina and Lennox Head and Byron Bay, in the hills behind the Gold Coast, even the south end of the Gold Coast coming, the river there, the Tweed River coming out at Snapper Rocks. Um, this uh, company was trying to get in and start fracking near the headwaters of all those amazing rivers, which come down to all these amazing waves. And, uh, and at that um event what happened was the governance had um signed you know classic secret deals a few years earlier to give uh, this industry access to land and uh, when the trucks started to appear out of nowhere and try and put these drills in the ground on these far on these farms farmers rang up their neighbors started talking the f they t started talking to other friends in town and then all of a sudden it just caught on that this really um, sort of unresearched uh, and perhaps even then there was research to show how dangerous fracking was but it, it was just a very new and sort of scary industry to ins try and insert itself into a really thriving um, agricultural area and so all of a sudden there was a blockade and it became this thing called the Bentley blockade and you go online you check out the Bentley blockade you'll see how basically an entire region came together and formed a human blockade at this site to stop the trucks and to stop the machines getting into a location to to break ground and what we saw there that was so exciting was that we had even a few surfers out there you know this is like an hour inland and it's really hard to get surfers to do anything like that and so there was even a few of us out there and there was real estate agents doctors lawyers cow you know dairy farmers, um, hemp farmers, indigenous communities well represented. There was everyone there shoulder to shoulder and in the end it worked and um, the government was going to send riot police in to break up the crowd because the local police even were on side with the community and weren't going to do that. And so when it came time to it, 
and we all got word that the the riot police were coming from Sydney to break up the the blockade and let the industry in. Um, over I think it was somewhere over two thousand plus people turned up on this fence line at, at this farm and were like, okay, sweet, bring it on, bring them on. That's like fifty people to each single riot cop. Let's see how far they go. <laughs> And yeah, so, uh, right. and so, because everyone turned up, the police never came. The permits were all pulled. There was an investigation, and the corruption was exposed. And it was a win, and it was this huge win for everyone um, to realize that because all of these previously opposed groups and demographics within culture here came together and started just sitting by the by the fire or having a cup of tea or having a beer and actually talking and humanizing each other and our and realizing that we all share um, these beautiful places with, with each other that have to be healthy if we're to be healthy and and all of a sudden it worked and so I think I think that happening um, was really something that we were using when we were starting to do the rounds in Australia talking about um, the the threat of big oil coming into the bite was that, hey, if we just get into um, these small communities where often surfers are also fishers or are also working in the timber industry or whatever, and just make sure everyone's talking to each other because these industries thrive on coming in and trying to divide up communities and make us squabble between each other in order for them to slip in and do their work. So so the great thing about um, the fight for the bite uh process was that it was a really um communicative sort of um domino effect that started happening around the country everyone just started talking to each other and it was it was perfect when the when equinor went to the bite and started doing these like phony community meetings where they would you know talk to just a couple people in a closed room and then quickly scurry away they wouldn't answer any proper questions or anything Everyone got on the phone to each other and were like, you wouldn't believe the crap these people were telling me and they just did this bullshit and then they left, you know, they all flew in on choppers and and of course, you know, Australia being a pretty small population, it's like all of a sudden, you know, Heathy's ringing up that person over there and she's ringing up me and I'm ringing this person and everyone is, is you know, um, up to speed. And so, so I think those sort of things uh, are um, really starting to really empower people here in Australia and also de-radicalize the whole protest activist idea. It's just like you see all those paddle outs that happen around Australia, you know, 60 odd thousand people participated in paddle outs around Australia and on our National Day of Action um, who were far from the areas that would have been affected by any kind of spill from that industry. Um, and they were grandparents and children and teachers and lifesavers and surfers and ferals and everyone, you know. So you can't if you if you're in that industry, their typical response to protests is that they just say, "Oh, an extremist left field group over there with extremist views," you know, and, and then all of a sudden you you get you get pushed aside. Um, but they can't say that anymore when you've got groups like around here, you've got a group called the Knitting Nanners and they're these, just these grandmas who sit and knit in front of the council offices of these people. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you know, so it's just, it's great stuff like that, which is really cool. And I think it really plays into the kind of larrikin spirit in Australia when you have things like that happening where you can make it a good time and make it more of a celebration about what we love and what we want to 
um, cherish and pass on to the next generation rather than what we're protesting and saying no to, you know? So I think that's a big, big change too in terms of uh, activism these days. Yeah, well, that's really positive, isn't it? Because like you say, that divide and rule tactic is is it's the number one in the playbook isn't it you yeah have to try and so so if that's being circumvented because people are just bypassing it because it's more of a coalition of people ordinary people then that's obviously hugely positive so in your because you, you know you've got a long history of activism obviously which is well documented um a lot of different issues around around the world is that is this trend that you're describing recent is that is this is this a shift in the way that people are approaching activism? Is that something that you've noticed generally? I I reckon. Are you seeing that in England? Like I I get the uh, Resurgence and Ecologist magazine, which is from the UK, and I uh, that's a quarterly magazine that comes out there, which has a lot of updates on activism. It seemed like similar things were happening there. Is that your experience? Yeah, I think so. I think I think like when you've got those. I think we lack the 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 big win like you guys have had though. I would say there there are there is great work being done. Don't get me wrong, you know. But the, equally, there are serious. You know, we have a fracking issue over here, for mm. example. And I, I I don't really feel like we're winning those battles just yet. I feel like there's a bit more work to do on on the kind of like the plastic issue. There's there's amazing work being done. That that coalition is is in place for sure. But I feel. You know, I, I, I don't know what it's like in Australia. It's probably quite similar because you've got a Murdoch press as well, obviously. But, you know, over here, you need you need to, you so need to win that kind of Middle England, it's called, conversation yeah. to change these things. And that takes a while. And, yeah. and what tends to happen over here is you'll get this, like, issue which is palatable to that middle ground and plastic's a really good example because it's an easy one, isn't it? Or recycling, it's like, oh, I can do that and salve my conscience like I'm making a difference. Mm. But I feel like those those bigger... I might be wrong, and I, you know, I dare say people listening to this would, would think of some other examples. But yeah, I think Fight for the Bite, why it was so positive was because it was such a great example of that, wasn't it? It was such a, such a huge opponent as well. I mean, let's not, let's not forget that. You know, like such yeah. a, a huge company, government backing, and to actually win with this coalition that you're talking about was was it's just a huge achievement, isn't it? Yeah. Well, another thing, another aspect of it, which I think is really worth mentioning, so that other people can be aware of perhaps some of the um, the things that went into that whole campaign being successful, was it wasn't really owned by any one NGO either. It wasn't owned by a a group it wasn't a greenpeace led uh, action that happened around the country it wasn't uh, any of those type of wwf big ngos you know it was um it was really just a, a decentralized type of local localized um series of actions and i think that's really cool because it makes you like a moving target that makes it so difficult for for a a company like Equinor to put out all the fires that we were starting and um and so I think that's really great too so um you know I don't have anything against big NGOs they've done a lot of great work over the years and there's and there was a great coalition down there the fight for the bite alliance and everything down um down south was doing lots of great work um on the on the sort of bureaucratic levels and everything but but I really like I really like the um 
kind of guerrilla tactics of you know grassroots groups popping up everywhere and and just mirroring the fact that all life on this beautiful planet thrives on diversity so what we're doing with things like fight for the bite needs to mirror that because what we're we're trying to um you know balance out when we come up against a group like equinor is a very monoculture of the mind type of approach to the world they're just like we're going to do this thing called drilling in a supposed vacuum in their mind where we can do anything in this area and it's not going to spill out and affect anyone else don't worry fishing industry you'll be fine don't worry tourism you'll be fine you know and we know that that's not how this world operates so so i like i really like um you know just sort of thinking about and coming from those sort of um places when i when i see uh, a community-led you know activism effort of some sort it just feels like they always thrive when there's all kinds of people in the mix yeah no it's a really good point because like that kind of corporate cognitive dissonance you know the idea that they can they just feel like they can yeah you know the jedi mind trick yeah there's nothing to see here you know there's (laughs) This 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 is fine, but that is a, again, it's a tactic, isn't it? And you can see yeah. this. I don't I don't particularly want to make this yet another COVID conversation, but you can almost see this in the narrative, can't you? Like that's going on with COVID. It's like the way that governments are handling it. They're kind of using that same thing. It's like, no, we're doing a great job. Yeah. You know, like, I, I, what, what's your problem? You know, it's again, it's just a key a key tactic that they use, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. To to try and to try and stop activism in its tracks really yeah i feel like they're all very um militant style strategies and and coming from a very militaristic um worldview and and approach and so that's why for me when it comes to things like uh, activism where we're working on these these issues i really don't like the uh, using the same language like when when the whole bite thing started i was really not stoked about the fight for the bite title um because sure. because it, as, I can understand as, that. yeah as soon as you start entering into the fight mentality generally that's because the conversation stopped you know like people start swinging their fists and punching each other and stuff and fighting because they can't talk to each other anymore and so yeah uh you know and uh and so just seeing that things like that Bentley blockade really succeeded because people started talking to each other, people who typically would fight each other down at the pub on a Friday night, you know, if they saw each other, were actually chatting and talking and realizing their similarities more than their differences and, and you know, good things came from that. So, so it is something to be mindful of, I feel like, when these sort of things pop up and, and to try our best to, to step out of the whole us and them sort of dynamic i was reading so we got a mutual friend sean as well and he did a profile of use it's interesting that you say that because i pulled this quote out in in the piece he said he's a consensus activist he'll try and bring everyone with him rather than pick sides (laughs) and that extends to and that extends to the landscape as well that's the quote from this piece that sean did of you and is that something you've learned through through this experience this long experience you've had of of being involved in these different causes yeah so i think that comes from um lots of little moments with people and mostly from like seasoned activists over the years and just listening to their stories of like of butting heads with people and it just not working um and so so partly that but then also actually going back to 
what I would say was my first sort of, um, I guess, creation when it comes to to activism, where I I conceptualized the whole idea of doing a paddle out in um, Japan at the at the Taiji uh, Cove there, where the drives for cetaceans happen, and and at a time where every Japanese surfer I knew had no idea about any of that stuff and that issue, and so I was trying to get that information about you know how dangerous it was to consume cetacean meat because of the, the heavy metals and all the toxins in them and uh, i was trying to get out the information to the surfing and coastal communities there in japan on that and the inhumane nature of the drives and the and the the fact that they were, were nothing like the traditional drives that would happen there is very different practice now and uh and i tried and tried and tried and that didn't it didn't work and so then I came up with the idea of doing something perhaps more confrontational there but still very peaceful but just sort of getting in the way of those practices by getting in the water there and uh, and it was actually the night before we were to to paddle out into the cove and I'd, I'd organized you know th- something like 40 people to come there and we tried to do it as covertly as possible because we were all we all had sort of targets on us because I was affiliated with Sea Shepherd at the time. So, and then Japan, that we were considered terrorists and stuff. So we had to be very sort of covert um, so that we could even get to uh, that place in Taiji. But a word got to me the night, the day before, that some local surfers wanted to meet and talk, and uh, and because they'd heard that we were, I was coming to blow up all the boats in the harbour. <laughs> And, wow, and, they, right. and when they heard that from the fishermen that I was coming to do all this stuff, uh, the surfers there were like, no, nah, that doesn't make sense. He's, I don't think that Rastovich guy is that kind of guy. That, doesn't, that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> and so thankfully, yeah. they, they managed to reach out to us through some friends and we got to sit around late at night and have some sake and talk it out. And, and I got to tell them directly what it was that I was doing there and gave them printouts of all this information and and just sort of pleaded with them to 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 let us do this because it was it was going to come to blows with all kinds of people there um and uh and we avoided a big confrontation by just sitting down and having a chat and um and just yeah just getting stuck into it and being really honest and straight up with each other in that way and and i'm so grateful to those those locals who are up for doing that and so grateful to the um the honorable nature of of people in japan who have a link to their ecology and a link to their traditions and their culture and so i learned a lot from that it was like we dodged a lot of bullets because we we communicated so that was a real teacher for me um since then because i guess i guess the sea shepherd thing is like the you know at the far end of the adversarial approach isn't it you know in terms of like being confrontational yeah it's confrontational but it's an interesting one that one like captain paul watson you know the founder of sea shepherd he he references the fact that the dalai lama gave him this little statue um of this one buddhist deity called hayagriva and he this this um this statue represents like the 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 wrath the the compassionate wrath of the buddha where if someone's doing something that's quite you know um horrible and creating a lot of suffering sometimes you got to shake them you know give them a really wild shake to snap them out of that and so he he felt that 
by the Dalai Lama giving him this statue to put on the ba- on the uh, on the bridge of his of his ships whenever he was down in the Antarctic or wherever he was, or in the Faroes or all those sort of places. He he had that in mind, you know, and so um, so you know that was a different approach. And sometimes I think when when things escalate and uh, perhaps you've been trying for so long to communicate with people and it's just not going to happen, then sometimes those sort of actions, like the, when the Bentley blockade happened where people were chaining themselves to all these bizarre contraptions into the earth and like doing some pretty radical stuff to to make sure no one was getting through machinery, that's pretty intense, you know. And then I guess a a new incarnation of that sort of action was the paddle outs all around Australia for Fight for the Bite where, yeah, you had like tens of thousands of everyday Australians going out and and making some noise and uh, forming that circle in the water and um, and doing something that they had never done before and perhaps felt a bit vulnerable about, you know, um, but doing it. And, and I think that's really great. So to me, again, like I'm just sort of reiterating my point before, but I, that just feels really uplifting for me. And that's, I guess, that feeling of bringing people along and what Sean was talking about there is is because of those sort of experiences so it sounds like there's been an evolution in your approach to this really over the years which is you know an obvious thing to say because you've been doing it a while and you've been involved with so many campaigns you know, you've referenced quite a few um there's another quote in that piece don't worry i'm not going to keep reading quotes like <laughs> you. um which is from you actually it says for me now integrating activism into daily life um being able to raise my family, regenerate, regenerate the land I live on, stand up for what's happening in my local area is, is important. So, cause you know, traditionally you have been involved with these big causes. You've again, like I say, you've referenced a few. Has that shift to like a local thing that you describe in there, a natural part of the evolution in how you approach these, these issues? Yeah, I, I think um I think like through my twenties and early thirties, so I just turned forty, so between my twenties and early thirties, you know, I, I had the real travel surf adventure bug and you know, it's kind of one of those domino things where you meet someone on a trip and then they they say, Oh, I'm from this part of the world, do you wanna come visit? And so it's like, sure, I'll I'll roll with that and and then um all of a sudden you find yourself in South America or something or whatever it is and uh and so that's just sort of how that happened i i never really seeked out um causes or issues at all it was mostly the fact that you know the surfing culture is pretty small and you generally especially when you're surfing like waves of consequence or you're going out of the way to really get to specific types of waves you you meet a pretty small group of people who know each other so um so that that's kind of how those things were happening at the time where you know you'd meet ramon navarro and then ramon would tell us about issues in chile that might need some help or help a bit of amplification and and uh it's like how do you say no to that you know so all of a sudden (laughs) yeah you're drinking you know massive bottles of amazing red wine and having a great time and and trying to do your best to help (laughs) out a mate there you know or or whatever it is yeah 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 so for me it was it was always just like that like actually i've always been really happy to just sit on my bum at home and have a really simple daily life um but it was just that through being having really just 
good fortune and um, being lucky to be, I guess, a, a young white male in the world who's sporty. <laughs> um, I had lots of support um, to do these things. Um, but eventually, uh, you know, I found myself on the piece of land that we're living on now and with a partner who I would just have, I'd do anything for and really, really wanted to have children with. And, uh, and so those things have happened and so there's a, I guess, a natural sort of slowing down of the travel, and then, uh, and then the fact that, um, you know, Australia over the last few years has really had an increase in, you know, efforts to exploit the landscape and the seascape here. Like, there's just been radical stuff. Like, you know, you got the Adani um, coal mine idea off the Barrier Reef. You got expansion of fish farms in the bottom of the country where i have family living in tasmania you've got things like the oil industry and the bite and the gas industry here in our region or off sydney there's just been a huge ramping up of extraction industry efforts here so that's really brought it home too it's just like man we got stuff to do here and uh so that's just been a really sort of i don't know pretty mellow easy transition in that way where it's just a natural fit yeah it makes makes total sense you know like you say like you you change don't you personally as what's important to you and you again really obvious thing to say but what's important to you when you're 20 is not what's important to you when you're 40 (laughs) it's it's, it's that it's that's that simple isn't it yeah especially when you when you bring family into it and yeah there's there's quite often a, a a desire to ground yourself isn't there um, yeah. once you get to a certain point which it sounds like something that you've certainly has certainly happened to you well i'm largely trying to undo the last like 15 years of my life because <laughs> it was about as like you know excessive and and kind of hedonistic as it gets you know just flying places to go surfing um if it was for two weeks or if it was for two months or whatever you're still you know flying somewhere on the other planet just to go ride waves and like where I live, there's waves out here every single day. So why the hell was I doing that for 15 years? You know, it's a pretty gluttonous thing to do. Um, well, it's hard. It's hard to take yourself seriously, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if you if you have these interests and passions, which you clearly do, you know, it's difficult to reconcile those those things with that, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Yeah. So. So has your approach to travel changed? Because you know, you just did the trip to you know the island trip that's like a local thing isn't it is it is it more about that now like those yeah i i where you, can, where you yeah. can combine these these all these things yeah definitely it's been quite a few years for me of really not wanting to go anywhere uh, get on a plane or do anything i remember having some chats with fergal smith actually a few years ago just on the email when he was grounding himself in his area and and i felt much the same um but then, you know, we've, I've got a different situation where my partner's from America and, and uh, um, you know, we go there to visit her family and stuff. So there are still sort of these family trips that we do that we then tack on a bit of surfing stuff too so that it's just sort of perhaps one journey a year. Um, but other than that, it's really, you know, it's about having the good fortune of living in Australia, man. It's like as wave-rich 
and as spacious as it gets and and i have very yeah. like i have very low standards for surf like i'm really easily pleased <laughs> if it's not That's good to hear if it's not crowded <laughs> if it's like if there's no crowd and the water's clean i'm stoked like i'm really stoked and my partners we're the same and so so it's it's just so easy to stay here you know like just makes it really fulfilling to to um to dive into the water in this area and know that it's clean and to um you know just keep things simple and and that's just a result of having some great mentors you know like people like albie falzon you know the morning of the earth film, filmmaker who's who is just the probably the most stoked grounded and amazing elder surfer on the planet i think he he's just so radiant and just stoked he's got that wild sparkle in his eye you know in his mid to late 70s and he's surfing every day and and he's he's doing that because he's lived a very gentle simple life and so you know that's been yeah just a a fortunate thing for me is to have people like that to look up to and learn from you've got quite a community around you haven't you there as well yeah for all these for you know as all these elements he's describing whether it's the ocean the, the the activism the the lifestyle that you try to live yeah I'm, I'm assuming from what i know there's a lot of there's a lot of mentors and people you can look up to as well to to to, to learn yeah yeah exactly and so what we're what we're um playing around with at the moment is uh sort of rehabilitating a, a portion of the land that we're on um because it was logged twice and then just had cattle running on it for decades um is pretty beat up and so there's an amazing man jeff lawton who's a permaculture um sort of teacher and and wizard which is an amazing philosophy and approach to growing food and and uh um, basically mimicking you know wild ecology on the planet and uh so anyway we're um we are planting out and um turning the soil in this one part of our property into like a, a, a real sort of habitat sanctuary and also a real food bowl for our our place and because uh, we have a few friends living with us on our property and then the neighboring properties all have young kids and and uh, and we're all you know have coming together and having these little working bees in the soil and then cooking up food for each other and um, there is that sense of uh, of culture happening and just today i was talking with him and and uh he was mentioning you know look at the word agriculture you know it's got the word culture in it it's you you have a culture of of uh people working and cultivating of course the land um but there's a culture that forms and so it's just so good man it fits so perfectly with surfing it's like you go and surf in the morning and and then work the land all afternoon or something you know and and just do your best to to try and resurrect a place that's been beat up for so long and and get some food out of it at the same time i I just couldn't imagine anything better for my time it's it's really really fulfilling yeah it sounds it on the surfing thing in your last podcast you mentioned um you had a really interesting take on localism, I thought. Do you remember that little part of the conversation you and Lauren had? You were talking about um, 
the like the, the the corona thing and the you know, the current crisis and you were just really positive about localism you kind of it wasn't even localism it was more about local surfers um being connected to their community like you're describing um yeah it's, and and the localism was kind of mentioned mm. and you mentioned it as obviously like a pernicious thing mm. but you but you hoped it would lead to a positive outcome yeah i thought it was a really interesting perspective because that kind of isn't from my from what we're seeing over here tiny corner of the surfing universe if anything it seems to have brought out the most pernicious parts of that culture mm. so i just wondered what where you were coming from with that yeah uh it's it's probably <laughs> a bit naive or a bit too hopeful perhaps that... well i liked I, I liked it that's why i'm asking the yeah, question. yeah you know yeah I mean? yeah well i'd like to see you know I'd, it'd be amazing to see um to see that sort of distorted idea of protecting a place that localism has and our history of localism being that we try and keep other people away from a place that we cherish mostly because we want access to that place um without outsiders interference or something you know um so so there's and there's heaps of that here and there still is going on right now but um but the idea that it's just this tiny shift to the left that could turn that into a type of coastal custodial sort of role where you know you have this obvious um love and respect for a location if you're a local at a spot um <laughs> yeah you have this this amazing um, sort of bedrock of understanding of that place because you go there every day. If you're a true local, you know, you're surfing <laughs> that joint every day. You're there no matter if it's 10 foot or two foot or whatever, you know. So yeah. a cool thing about that is perhaps you're the perfect person to speak at a council meeting or a thing where someone wants to develop the area because you do go down there and sit on the point every day and you see the the whale migration or you see the the uh, marine debris that washes up every south swell or you see the you know the sewage that comes out when all the rivers are in flood you know there is real value in that type of first-hand knowledge of a location and so that's really what i'm trying to get at when i say that i, I feel like localism could be just shifted left a little where it becomes something that is instead of being all about you protecting a place and a, a resource for your enjoyment, it becomes you protecting and, you know, um, defending a place from true the true threats to that ecology, the true threats to that way of life. So, um, so anyway, that's just something that you see little bits and pieces of all around the coast in Australia among the kind of, you know, very self-centred, type of localism that we traditionally see um, so I, I would hope that you could just we could popularize that other type and and you know reorient some of that energy energy in a in a more selfless way i don't know yeah i mean it's a it, it, it's a powerful force but it is almost 100 percent toxic isn't it yeah so yeah um and you know obviously oh, fuck it's not the place to talk about localism in that sense you know we all know what it is but yeah i just thought it was really interesting because it's a perspective i've not really heard before 
Yeah. Which, is, which I think which I think is 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 a nice reimagining of of it really. Yeah, well it, it really for us like we have an amazing uh, friend who's just such a, a um a master in the localization movement over the decades Helena Norberg Hodge and she you know she just speaks Yeah, I really I really like the podcast. Yes, yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. So you you you've heard her point of view and and you know that it's localizing is is something that brings solutions to more and more of the things that we're having trouble with and so so that's why i was like oh well why don't we apply that to surfing okay what does that look like well obviously the you know just the words are so similar and maybe there is a way we can um localize things in in the surfing world in a healthy way and and so like when we look at this area for example right now you know a way that we can be you know vibrant and strong and um really thriving in this area is by by localizing you know localizing our food localizing our economy localizing our energy through things like solar power and and uh, those that we have at our disposal here where instead of it coming from another state in the country or coming from another country altogether um, we have these these systems that are localized and really strong and create all these great relationships in the area and and the thing is, it's not just sort of, it's not theory in this area. We we see it happening. People are trying, are trying all these ideas out and giving them a shot. And you see, oh wow, that that little community in the hills, they've been doing that one type of food growing and living together as a community for a few decades, and they're all stoked, man. They got the coolest, like they got the just the nicest um sort of aura around they all seem so happy and quirky and um you know they're not moving hectic and fast like you know people in fractured urban um areas are and so it just it just it just really piques your curiosity when you live in an area like this where people are willing to say something and then try it and uh and see where it goes you know it's neat. It's really neat. Okay, so I've got one more question for you, um, which is: has has your perspective on surfing shifted in in a similar way to the general shift that we've been discussing? Um, well, uh, I, I don't know. Surfing's a funny thing. It, it's um, for me. It's it's always been actually a very personal thing, which is weird because there's you know, I've had cameras around me and it's been something that's been in, I guess, magazines and websites and stuff like that. But I don't really participate in that world. Like I don't have social media. I didn't have a phone for a very long time. And um, I just don't really exist in that world much. Um, and so it's always just sort of felt like my own little universe, the surfing experience. And uh and even when you know perhaps being in places like Hawaii on the North Shore where it's everything's heavily documented everything um, that you do is is you know documented in one way or another I've always just sort of I don't know been in my own little world and um, and so now it's just easier to be in my own little world I just there's the you know Patagonia is like the exact opposite of everything in the surfing industry we try and do everything the opposite of <laughs> of every other group in the in that industry and so 
so really the only time that we would be you know shooting a picture of surfing or or doing anything like that is if it's going to be meaningful or useful in some way um and so that's really refreshing and amazing to to be able to um have that approach to that to that side of things but but for me, uh, you know, I pretty much surf alone every day. We, we live on a stretch of coast where there's some space and um, I kind of, uh, yeah, just seek out my own little corners and, and surf alone mostly. And it's only when we have a, a very specific type of swell where everyone pretty much ends up at the same couple of spots that I'll, I'll surf in a crowd. But, but generally, it's just my own thing and it's just very personal and... Um, and, uh, and even then when I'm in crowds, I generally will paddle off on my own somewhere or sit somewhere different. And, and that's just kind of how it's always been. It's just that, that what's around me now is, is different and, and just less. There's just less stuff around for all of that to happen. And, but actually more than ever, surfing is so meaningful and fits into this life, which is, you know, growing food and working on these projects like fight for the bite and um and doing all that stuff and raising a family but it's just i feel like i've got more fizz for surfing now than i ever have (laughs) which is really comforting and just great and just very fortunate just so lucky man just like you know even now like with this whole situation there's friends that we've spoken to in other parts of the world who haven't been able to surf for months and uh and here we are doing doing what we normally do here. So it's just, we're just very we're very fortunate to be where we are. Have you uh, have you got a phone now? I do. I've gone through. How are you finding that? I've gone through. A, <laughs> well, with a two year old, it's a really good thing, actually. <laughs> it's really yeah, good. Yeah, it's really handy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It would really kicked in when uh, a grommet came along. That's just like, oh, okay, yeah, it's really uh, it's probably quite selfish to to not have one and it's good to know how he is if i'm not around and vice versa but that said i'm actually i'm really notoriously shit at using it and uh my my birthday party recently when i had pretty much everyone in my world together with me i i my the very first thing i said to everyone was an apology a deep apology on how shit (laughs) how shit i am with with being communicative with that device so Hopefully, I can do better. <laughs> yeah, small steps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, if I'll, I'll know it's changed if I see you on Instagram. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That would be a big, big change. We know the world's definitely yeah. tweaking out if that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, Dave. Thanks, man. Oh, that was great. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise. And keep keep it up, man. It's it's great to just hear the the different stories in our um in our culture and. And uh, we we both feel like it's really important, and you know it's just good. So good on you for for taking the time to do that, and yeah, likewise keep it up. So there you go. That was me in conversation with Dave Rastovich, and I hope you enjoyed it. I highly, highly recommend Dave and Lauren's podcast, Water People, which covers similar territory on in typically sensitive and thought provoking fashion. Get on it, and thanks again, Dave, for coming on the show. As you probably know, I release new episodes of Type 2 every month or so, and they appear in my usual Looking Sideways feed, which you can subscribe to via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your usual podcast purveyor. If it's your first time checking it out, 
have a look at the back catalogue. If you head over to my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com, you'll find over 100 episodes of interviews with some of the biggest names in action sports and other related endeavours. And also, if you enjoyed Type 2, consider following me on Instagram over at We Look Sideways because I have been doing Type 2 live on Instagram every few weeks. They've gone monthly now. And um, they're working out really well. It's a live interview with a guest discussing the things that we raise in the interview and also just seeing how they're getting on. I've spoken to Belinda Bags, Hugo Taghorn from Surface Against Sewage, Chris Hines. Um, yeah, there's been a few of them and they've been great. Got a good audience building up on there. So we look sideways on Instagram and or Patagonia Europe on Instagram if you want to check those out every uh, few Fridays. All right. That's it. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Nice one. Mm-hmm.